This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. I think the reason this historical work is catching some people's attention is that we're presented maybe really for the first time in American history with a president who so often seems to act in a selfish or private interest rather than being kind of true to the oath to act for the benefit of the public and the public good. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the courts and the rule of law and the Constitution. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover many of those things for Slate. And we are creeping up on the last days of the Supreme Court's 2018 term. It's a term that's been marked by a controversial hearing for Brett Kavanaugh. And then an absence of a lot of really big ticket cases, but a steady drift to the right, a willingness to strike down precedent. And in recent weeks, some really interesting departures from the standard 5-4 left-right narrative we've been using about this court. We're going to talk about all that, but first, to the flurry of decisions handed down just in the past few days, I'm joined by Slate's Mark Joseph Stern. Mark covers the courts and the law for Slate, and it's always a pleasure to have you here. Welcome back, Mark. Oh, thank you so much for having me back on. Always such a delight, especially in June, our favorite month of the year. Uh, First, Mark, let's talk about Friday's big ticket case. This is Flowers versus Mississippi. It's a case we covered earlier this year on the podcast and also a case that was the subject of the award-winning podcast In the Dark. Uh, So lots of folks know about it. And this essentially involves a sixth attempt by the same Mississippi prosecutor to get a conviction for a black man accused of murdering four people in a furniture store. Uh, Maybe somewhat surprising, the court uh, reversed Flowers' conviction, kicks him back for if the state wants to try him for a seventh trial. And it's a seven to two decision written by Brett Kavanaugh that essentially says, uh, no no dice, this is just uh, way beyond the bounds of what can be a constitutional uh, jury pool. Uh, Mark, is this surprising to you? Well, I don't think this is a a wacky or unpredictable lineup. You have Justice Kavanaugh writing for the court and uh, only Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch dissenting. The other conservative justices joined Kavanaugh's opinion, so did the liberals. And I think that is a fairly predictable outcome. If there's any surprise, it's that Justice Samuel Alito uh, joined Kavanaugh's opinion. But he also wrote separately to say, look, this case is really weird. It's kind of a once in a lifetime thing. Uh, So don't think that I'm suddenly going to be voting against racist prosecutors just because I'm voting uh, for flowers here. Uh, And it is such 
such a crazy case. Like you said, six trials, right? And throughout those six trials, the same one white prosecutor uh, struck 41 of 42 prospective black jurors, clearly trying to build all white juries. Uh, it is just undeniable if you look at the evidence here that this was a case of prosecutorial racism. Uh, and it's not surprising that even Chief Justice Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh uh, said, look, we aren't just totally blind to racism here. This is where we'll draw the line. And I actually think Kavanaugh's opinion is pretty good in saying uh, there's a line in the sand and you guys down in Mississippi crossed it. So, Mark, at minimum, uh, can we say that uh, this gives some teeth to the 1986 Batson decision? That was the decision that essentially said, yeah, go ahead, use your peremptory challenges, but you may not use them uh, to exclude jurors on the basis of race. Does Batson get new life because of this? Yeah, this definitely bolsters Batson and says if a prosecutor is striking a juror who happens to be a minority uh, and can still provide some kind of ostensibly neutral reason for doing it, under Batson, the defendant gets to come forward and say, wait a minute, this is suspicious, uh, this seems race-based to me, and there has to be a full and fair airing of that. Uh, there can't just be endless pretext to the point that you have an obviously racist prosecutor asserting obviously racist challenges and everybody pretends like it's fine because it's Mississippi. Uh, the other case that came down uh, uh, on Thursday, Mark, uh, and it was another, I think, that had enormous potential to uh, disrupt the entire landscape uh, was Gundy versus United States. We're going to talk about it a little bit later in the show, but can you just describe what the 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 challenges we're trying to do here in terms of this, quote, non-delegation doctrine that was going to be used to kind of blow up the administrative state as we know it. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it, to blow up the administrative state and specifically the New Deal, right? So in 1935, the Supreme Court struck down these two New Deal laws uh, on the grounds they delegated too much legislative power from Congress to the executive branch and said, look, you can't give all of your power away, Congress. You're the ones who are supposed to legislate. Uh, you have to provide some intelligible principle when you delegate power. Uh, and since 1935, the Supreme Court has never struck down a law on the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, and Gundy was an attempt to sort of revive it. It was targeting the sex offender law that I will not defend on the merits. I think it's a terrible law. But as the liberal justices pointed out in their plurality decision, it does provide that intelligible principle to the attorney general. It has the attorney general uh, decide when and how to apply the sex offender registry that it creates to everybody who was convicted before the law was passed. Uh, uh, look, I think that's a terrible outcome. I think it's really unfair and probably an ex post facto violation. But I agree that there is an intelligible principle here. And more importantly, I think that if the court found otherwise, it would open the door for pretty much every federal statute passed since the New Deal to get struck down because that's how Congress works these days. Congress delegates its power to federal agencies, the EPA, the Department of Labor, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It tells these agencies, you figure out what to do. We're going to give you broad goals and you fill in the details. Uh, if this law had fallen and the non-delegation doctrine had been revived, then I think a bunch of those agencies would get stripped of their power and a ton of other federal laws would fall with it. And, and I think it's worth just flagging that um, Alito joins with the liberals in this case. Uh, he, For the first time. Yeah. And he's he's really careful to say, uh, I'm not doing this today. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's only eight justices because Kavanaugh's not yet on the court when this is heard. Uh, I don't think this means that um, Alito is in love with the administrative state as we know it, correct? No, not at <laughs> okay. all. He, Alito just says it would be freakish to revive the non-delegation doctrine in this case. Basically, I hate sex offenders more than I love the non-delegation doctrine. Uh, but give me Kavanaugh's vote. Give me a case that he sat on. And I'm willing to go whole hog with all my conservative pals and destroy the entire administrative state. The other big case that we covered on this show, but you wrote about uh, so well on Thursday, Mark, was American Legion versus American Humanist Association. This is the big old Maryland cross case. Can you just quickly uh, help us understand how this, this came out as a seven to two? Yeah, I mean, big cross on public land in Maryland. It's a World War One memorial, but it's also it's a you know, it's a symbol of Jesus, right? Like no one can really deny that a cross is a symbol of Christianity and of Jesus Christ. But the courts in this uh, sort of splintered decision says, well, yeah, it was originally Christian, but it's old and it's big and it's taken on new meaning. And five justices in the majority, which are kind of an odd lineup, you have Roberts, uh, Kavanaugh, Alito, who wrote the opinion, and then Kagan and Breyer saying, we're not going to decide if this would be constitutional if it were built today, right? But it was built in 1920. It's old and it has taken on this new kind of secular meaning ever since then. So whatever the merit of putting up crosses today uh, in 1925, it was fine. And because of all this time that's passed, we're going to let it be. And and I think uh, I have struggled to try to figure out what the new rule is <laughs> post this. Um, <laughs> it seems to be we all hate the lemon test, right, which is the traditional uh, test we use to to figure out uh particularly these these uh, religious symbols on public lands cases. We don't know what the new test is. I think the new test is some version of what you just articulated, which is a bunch of people hate lemon, but if it's old, we're not going to squawk. Is that a fair articulation? I think that's right. But what's funny is that you have Kavanaugh and Kagan and Breyer, who all ostensibly joined the majority opinion, they sign on to it, or almost all of it, writing separately to interpret it differently. Kavanaugh seems to think that if the federal government built a 100-foot cross on the National Mall today, that would be perfectly constitutional uh, if they called it a war memorial. Kagan and Breyer disagree. They think it matters that it's old. So not even the justices who who purported to lay down the new rule actually know what the new rule is. This may be a kind of ticket good for one ride only situation where the Bladensburg cross is constitutional. The next cross up, we'll have to we'll have to figure it all out again. Sounds like fun. Mark, what's coming down? We got 12 cases, three days next week, I assume is the end of term. Tell us what we're looking for. I mean, all eyes right now are on two major cases. Both implicate voting rights in different ways. There's the partisan gerrymandering case, in which the court's going to determine if uh drawing district lines due to partisan affiliation to, you know, dilute certain votes is constitutional uh, and, and whether courts can put a stop to it. And then you have the big census case where the court will decide whether the Trump administration can add a citizenship question to the 2020 census, both almost certain to be 5-4 decisions, uh, both going to be hugely important for the future of voting rights and enfranchisement in the United States. Uh, I think those are the remaining major 
major blockbusters. Uh, and if both of them come out in a conservative 5-4 split, I think it's going to be a really bad day for the court's legitimacy and prestige. And I think we're going to see a lot more Democratic 2020 hopefuls talking about court reform. Will you come back next week, Mark, for the end of the term and just big bottle of bourbon? We'll talk it all out. I will come back for you anytime. You don't have to bring bourbon. You can bring one of those little mini airplane sized liquor bottles. We'll make do with whatever we need to. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law for Slate and has been uh, an incredibly uh, astute court watcher, particularly this term. Mark, thank you so very much for being with us. Thanks so much. Mark will be back for our next show where we'll be joined by some of our favorite Supreme Court commentators and we'll talk about the end of the term, including this census question and uh, the gerrymandering cases. But for now, let's turn to the bigger, bigger picture. And that means a look at the actual words of Article 2 of the Constitution, the words we sometimes gloss over when we read them. And it means another peek at the take care clause. We looked at it a few months ago when Ian Basson of Protect Democracy was a guest. And we want to do it again through the lens of a new law review article much discussed in the legal wonka sphere by three law professors, Andrew Kent, Ethan Lieb, and Jed Sugarman. Their paper, Faithful Execution in Article 2, uh, published in the June 2019 Harvard Law Review, is an original historical analysis of a part of the Constitution we don't look at that much, the double invocation of the president's duty of, quote, faithful execution in the Take Care Clause and the Presidential Oath Clause. The paper starts from the proposition that the president has to do more than just not do crimes under Article 2. He or she actually has affirmative responsibilities as mandated in the Constitution. Their article's been referenced by no less a person than George Conway, writing in the Washington Post last April. And as I say, it's created a little bit of a buzz because it's reimagining the affirmative obligations of the president. Andrew Kent teaches law at Fordham University School of Law. He writes about constitutional law, foreign relations law, federal courts and procedure, and a whole bunch of other things. He joins me here in studio. And Jed Sugarman is a Fordham law professor as well, the author of The People's Courts and Sugar Blog. And he's a frequent Slate contributor and amicus guest. Jed joins us down the line. Jed and Andrew, welcome to Amicus. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay. Before we do executive oath-taking, can we do a, a quick moment on this week's big decisions? Gentlemen? Of course. Okay. Sure. Okay. So so let's start with Monday's case, uh, Gamble. Uh, we've done shows on this. This got a lot of attention. This is about dual sovereignty. And I think it got very, very tangled up with people's feelings about Paul Manafort and Donald Trump. And then it was covered that way. Uh, the decision was covered that way. And I think you both, certainly I know you, Jed, think that it needs to be unbraided from that framing. So can we talk about it just as a case before we talk about it through this uh, paradigm of what it means for Trump? Do, do, does one of you want to set the table and tell us about Terrence Gamble? Do you, do you want to start us off, Jed? Sure. So uh, so Terrence Gamble uh, in 2015 was pulled over in Alabama, uh, pulled over for a broken taillight. Um, an officer discovered a gun. So first, the state of Alabama prosecuted Gamble for illegal possession of the firearm served a year in prison. And then the federal government came back and charged Gamble with the same crime, illegal possession of a firearm. Same same crime, same offense. And uh, and then he served another prison sentence. Um, and so this is, uh, uh, one might think that this would violate 
the double jeopardy provision of the Fifth Amendment, no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy. But there's a doctrine, longstanding precedent of a doctrine called dual sovereignty, which treats the federal and state governments as two separate entities uh, and allowing uh, federal and state successive prosecutions, even if federal prosecutors can't go twice or state prosecutors can't go twice on the same offense. And, and Andrew, can you explain if we lived in a world without Donald Trump and Paul Manafort, this would be a very different, we'd be having a very different conversation about whether it is just and fair to prosecute people twice for the same crime, right? I think we would. And, you know, there's arguments on on both sides from a policy perspective. You know, some of the famous examples where there's uh, subsequent prosecutions are civil rights cases where um, a state prosecution, you know, failed for some reason in, you know, often crimes involving, um, you know, unpopular racial or, or religious minorities. And the federal government then decides uh, to prosecute subsequently. Uh, you know, a lot of people ap- applaud those as, you know, the federal government being a backstop for uh, kind of insufficient state uh, justice systems. And then on the other side, you know, we see cases like, uh, like Gamble's where, you know, there's not an argument that state Governments are in some way kind of you know failing to take gun crime seriously. There's no allegations of discrimination. It's not a question of the incompetency of the states in any way. And this raises very different policy questions, really about justice and, and fairness, about why for you know the exact same conduct where there's not an argument that uh, kind of one uh, of the levels of government failed or should have priority or anything like that. Just simply the federal government decided they wanted more jail time and and and, and they got it here. And, you know that's a, that's a different and much harder case. So, so, Jed, tell us, this is a, a kind of improbable seven to two split. This is not any kind of usual uh, split. And we've got a seven to two decision here um, saying we're, we're cool <laughs> with, with continuing to have dual sovereignty and then uh, fairly uh, angry dissent uh, from, <laughs> again, an improbable match. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Neil Gorsuch each filing dissents. What, what's the logic of the majority first? Well, the logic of the majority is uh, with the with the Justice Alito majority opinion for seven is that there is a historical evidence on both sides. Uh, Alito says there's a, a balance of evidence. There's slightly more historical evidence that favors the dual sovereignty. But he says, you know, given that you've got evidence on both sides, uh, we have to make sure that we we need more clarity from the original meaning before we're going to overturn what is basically 150, 170 years of Supreme Court precedent. Um, and I think Alito should be commended for what could be called a kind of originalism with restraint um, here in this case. Uh, I, one interesting piece of evidence Alito pulls out of the history is from the Declaration of Independence, uh, where the revolutionaries complained about King George III a quote, protecting British troops by a mock trial from punishment for any murderers which they should commit um, on the inhabitants of these states. And the implication is the concern of having a show trial in one jurisdiction um, that would then uh, prevent another jurisdiction from, from seeking justice. So given that there um, was, was a lack of clarity, I think the seven justices got it right. Andrew, what are the dissenters saying, and are they wrong? So they're relying, uh, you know, especially Justice Gorsuch, a lot on uh, on English legal history and arguing a lot about a, a relatively small number of cases that are somewhat ambiguous. Um, 
And, you know, I tend to agree with Jed there that when history is so thin that that should not be the primary determinant in a decision. You know, Justice Ginsburg is much more concerned about, um, you know, she uses the word, you know, fairness and the unfairness of uh, of this. And, you know, obviously in, in a gamble type situation, uh, it's it's quite uh, obvious that there could be a real unfairness. You know, I think the question is, um, is the unfairness here or in cases like this, is that significant enough uh, you know, to drive uh, someone to want to overturn, uh, you know, very long-standing precedents. It apparently is for her, uh, but um, you know, I'm not sure that uh, that uh, there's other members of the Supreme Court who are as convinced as she is that there's um, any kind of significant problem with this. I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen statistics on it, but I would imagine the gamble kind of situation is is pretty rare. Uh, you know, prosecutorial resources are expensive. Law enforcement resources are expensive. And, you know, generally speaking, if someone's already been punished for the exact same offense, um, that's probably going to be it in the vast majority of cases. And so the, you know, kind of the gamble type unfairness might actually not be such a significant problem. Um, so, so now let's throw the cloak of the present day over it and the, the all the ways in which for I think a lot of Americans, this was a huge sigh of relief because it means that even if Donald Trump pardons uh, some of uh, the folks who are at the top of both convicted misconduct and alleged misconduct, that states can still go after them. I know you, Jed, have said pretty pointedly, A, in Politico, that that's not quite the right framing, and B, uh, that New York has a lot to answer for in its going after uh, Paul Manafort. So do you want to just give us the, the quick and dirty on, on why you think th- this second lens has distorted um, what this case is really about? Right. I mean, this is actually some part of the remarkable paranoia about this case initially. There were many people who were who were spreading a kind of paranoid conspiracy theory that Kavanaugh was being appointed to the court to then and, and Gamble was taken um, as a case in order to to create a new double jeopardy rule to to protect Trump's co-conspirators. And this was always uh, a mis mis perception and misunderstanding of, of the of the underlying case. Um, first of all, it's important that many states already have their own double jeopardy rules that would have that all, that do what Gamble could have done if it had come out the other way. And prosecutors have been making sure uh, strategically that I think uh, we can we can speculate that they were preserving enough charges or that there were enough uh, other outstanding charges that could have been brought by the states because prosecutors weren't bringing every kind of claim they could. Um, so, for example, Manafort is still facing um, indictments. He faces potential charges in California and Illinois, um, as well as um, in New York. Um, and other uh, defendants in the Trump cases, like Flynn, um, could face state charges. Flynn and Manafort were convicted of some crimes that were only prosecutable on the federal level. Flynn was was uh, pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. There's no state crime that could have been brought um, on that offense. So this was a lot of of of, of paranoia, and uh, and really um, it didn't change the prospect of, of these defendants still facing some state charges. Um, but that I, I br- that brings us to I think a legitimate question about what's happening with the New York State prosecutor, the Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance 
who uh, is actually violating New York state law um, on double jeopardy. Um, uh, at, right after Manafort was uh, sentenced and his, his federal sentencing was finished, that same day, Vance brought 16 charges against Manafort and for New York state crimes. 12 of those 16 charges seem pretty clearly and flagrantly a violation of Manafort's civil liberties under New York State. Uh, and of the four other charges that are not duplicative um, of what he was already convicted of, those four are for a relatively minor felony of, of a single bank transaction. And that leads, I think, to the controversy this week of Manafort being sent to Rikers um, for this essentially one transaction, one, uh, one, one set of charges under New York State law. Um, and then the DOJ interve- intervening to make sure he didn't go to Rikers. Uh, I think one can look at partisanship on both sides, but ultimately Cyrus Vance has never answered, has, has never adequately answered why he's not uh, uh, violating Manafort civil liberties and, uh, and why Vance uh, has a lot to answer for, for delegitimizing um, some of the efforts to hold Trump's, uh, uh, some Trump associates responsible for their crimes. I want to give Andrew a chance to respond if he would like to to this claim that the state prosecution is overzealous and this is this is not vindication of kind of the kind of justice that we're talking about when we talk about the underlying facts of of at least gamble. It it does seem to me that there's a double jeopardy problem given New York statute that goes uh, you know beyond what the Constitution, as the Supreme Court just reaffirmed, does in terms of its protections. But you know, I, mean, I guess the, I think the important point here is just to remember that. You know, quite oftentimes, the federal government uh, and state governments are prosecuting very different types of crimes, and federal interests in things like uh, obstruction of justice in, in federal proceedings, lying to the FBI, failing to register as a foreign agent that's lobbying the, you know, the federal government. There's all kinds of federal crimes, including you know some commit, seemingly committed by Trump's associates that have no state analogs at all. And so, for kind of the broad swath of, of things that you know we're talking about with regard to the Mueller report and, and related investigations, you know, these double jeopardy concerns just uh, are entirely absent. So this uh, this is really a conversation about Paul Manafort um, and his particular ability to violate both federal and state laws because uh, you know taxes and banking are things that both the federal government and the state governments regulate. And he seems to have tried to defraud uh, you know in, in both of those settings. There's a through line between Gamble, which we've just talked about, Gundy, we're about to talk about, and then your paper, which is their all about sort of deep dives into history. Um, and it is interesting that, and I think you flicked at this, Jed, in your answer, that the different justices are thinking about history in really uh, different ways and not necessarily in ways that we might expect. But it brings me to Gundy, um, which was going to be the, the harbinger of what we all thought was going to be a mass sh- massive shift in the constitutional order and the beginning of using the non-delegation doctrine to to change everything. And, and it didn't happen uh, on Thursday. So I wonder, Andrew, can you just sketch out what the issue was in Gundy and how this is much bigger than just a, a, a sex offender law? Sure. I mean, it does, you know, narrowly, as, as you said at the outset, Dolly, it does concern the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. Uh, but this federal statute was kind of layered on top of prior federal and state regimes for uh, for sex offender registration. And Congress seems to have uh, basically kind of had a hard time coming to a decision about what uh, would happen with regard to sex offender registration for people who had committed their sex offenses prior to 2006 when this law was enacted. 
And so uh, the way the dissenters here read this was Congress just entirely left this huge question open. What do we do with 500-something thousand sex offenders who committed pre-act crimes and delegated to the Attorney General of the United States the ability to decide what they should have to do in terms of registration and failure to register has criminal penalties. So a very significant decision. The majority reads the statute a little more narrowly, saying Congress made the policy decision here and just kind of left it to um, to the Attorney General to fill in the details. But if it's right uh, that, th- that this uh, really big policy choice was kind of left up to uh, an agency, to the Department of Justice, then, you know, that's a that's a very significant issue and really implicates a huge swath of what Congress and, and the federal government does because Congress in all areas, in uh, telecommunications and the environment, and you just you know, sort of run across the board in areas where Congress uh, regulates primarily by giving authority to administrative agencies. Congress's statutes are often quite open-ended and leave a lot of policy discretion in the agencies. So if the, if the majority of the court here kind of wanted to say Congress has has not made the policy choice, they've been too open-ended and given too much authority to an agency, this could have been a case that had, you know, huge ramifications for um, a, a large amount of uh, of administrative regulation at the federal level. And, and Jed, can you just explain um, what the non-delegation doctrine is and how it sort of went out of fashion and then back in? And I, I think Andrew's um, laid the table, but but help us understand what was at stake if this had been given the sort of robust interpretation that folks thought was coming? Right. So the stakes of this case were huge. So just to take a step back, the Constitution uh, says in Article 1, confers on Congress legislative powers. And so the question is, what happens in our modern administrative state over the last century when Congress creates a bureaucratic administrative state uh, sets out some jurisdiction or some powers to agencies, um, and how much guidance, how much lawmaking should Congress be doing, or how much lawmaking authority can it delegate um, to the uh, agencies that then make rules about the environment, about labor, health, safety. So this really could impact all of our modern governance in the administrative state. What the Supreme Court has done as a matter of doctrine is that it allows Congress to delegate tremendous authority to these agencies, but as long as they provide those agencies with, quote, an intelligible principle. And there is a lot of controversy about how much clarity has to go with that intelligible principle. How intelligible must it be? And I think that there is significant questions now. Um, and, and this goes back to some of our other concerns in the in this era about the delegation to the executive branch about emergency powers. Is there an intelligible principle there? Um, it really cuts both ways, right? How much discretion and power Congress has given to the executive branch can cut in uh, both ways politically. And so this case was potentially a vehicle for the court to require more clarity, a more obvious and limited intelligible principle to limit the discretion of uh, the executive branch. So, So in a profound way, I guess if I was explaining this to a seventh grader, in some ways, this was kind of another one of those cases about who gets to decide. And Alito sides with the liberals. Uh, he's not willing to go there. Uh, why, Andrew? Well, he wrote an interesting uh, concurring opinion where 
he says he is willing to go there mm-hmm. as as long as a Not majority <laughs> a majority of the court is with them. But today, uh, you know, there's only eight justices participating. Kavanaugh did not, and today there was not a majority of the court that was willing to revi- revisit. Um, you know the the majority's approach here. So he said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go along with uh, the liberals for now." But um, you know, he, he he explicitly said, um, "Give me another case in the future and four other justices who agree that we should revisit this." And and I'm there. How much do the two of you see Gamble Gundy? Some of the, you know, dodging the Baker case, uh, surprising all of us. How much of, of this is the court just trying to stay under the radar before a big election? Jed? I think that there is a lot of uh, restraint um, we've seen in the last you know, last year, this year, um, and in some of these cases, uh, certainly trying to avoid some of these abortion cases. Um, and I, I think looking at uh, Justice Alito himself, I, I think... I was surprised to read these the these two opinions, and I'll say a word about the the case about the cemetery cross. Um, there's a lot to commend for Justice Alito in a kind what I might describe as originalism with restraint. I, I think this is a good sign that, uh, as opposed to Justice Thomas, who I think is a little bit aggressive with his approach of originalism and doubting precedent. Alito in the Gamble case uh, about double jeopardy said, look, you know, the the history isn't clear, so let's defer to 170 years of precedent. In Gundy on non-delegation, Alito writes a, a half a page basically saying, you know, it would be freakish for a quote-unquote freakish to single out the provision at issue here for special treatment. Um, and is and, uh, is emphasizing the importance of the rule of law of having five justices set out a clear standard. Um, I think that's to be commended. And I think to be clear, I think this case, Gundy, was exact was an example of a lack of clarity. You know, as Andrew said, 500,000 people were uh, going to be affected by this statute. Congress should, even if it delegated some of this authority uh, over how to handle those past uh, offenders, should have given some more guidance to the attorney general, some limitation on just a uh, uh, such an impactful kind of a decision. And finally, just to say a word about the case about the cross, on the one hand, you have Justice Thomas basically saying, let's get rid of a 50-year-old uh, precedent on the Establishment Clause, the Lemon Test, and just overturn it. Um, whereas Alito is much more cautious in valuing precedent uh, and uh, makes a, what would be, a, I think, a relatively moderate decision with, uh, with Kagan and Breyer agreeing with the outcome. So um, this is caution. Uh, maybe it's just political, but I think we should um, at least commend um, the court for, uh, I think, uh, these three decisions that I think reflect a certain amount of balance. Let's just also flag for a moment that... Uh on Monday, Clarence Thomas just overtly wrote that a demonstrably incorrect judicial decision should be reversed. So he's he's really kind of bearing down on the burn it all, burn it all, you know, precedent doesn't matter. And that's um, really an interesting counter programming of what you're describing um, as the rest of the court trying to at least preserve I don't want to say the appearance, but I think the preserve the actuality that precedent matters and they're bound by something. Andrew, do you have any further thoughts on whether this is the court just just trying to stand down when everybody is screaming? Yeah, you know, I wouldn't deny that the court can respond to 
uh, you know pressures you know like what um, some folks have suggested with you know thinking about an election coming but that's not usually uh, the first place I go to for an explanation of a decision and I think you know these cases that we've been talking about today uh, justices voted the way that um, I think makes sense given their prior views and you know what we know about their their jurisprudence and their views about history and precedent and uh, policy views about criminal justice and all these other things so you know I'm not seeing uh, examples um, uh, in these big end of term cases of, of justice kind of doing something that I uh, find surprising that we could then attribute to you know some kind of external uh, motive. I think we just have uh, a conservative majority that has um, members that have very different instincts about precedent, about the role of the courts vis-a-vis the legislatures. Thomas is an extremely different kind of conservative than Alito, who's a very different kind of conservative than uh, Kavanaugh uh, in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, I think going forward, we probably will see kind of intra-conservative majority sort of splits about things like the role of history and the role of precedent, um, how aggressively to overrule older precedents, how much they're going to worry about unsettling, uh, you know, very settled institutional arrangements. Um, I, I think those differences are going to persist. I want to take a moment to talk to you about our membership program, Slate Plus. If you're hearing this, you are listening to the regular version of our show, which is awesome, and we thank you. But if you were to sign up for Slate Plus, you could enjoy this show commercial-free, and you would get access to bonus segments and extended versions of all your favorite Slate shows. It's only $35 for a year, a year, I tell you, and you can sign up free for two weeks to check it out first. And that's not all. This is the important bit. By signing up for Slate Plus, you'd be supporting this show and all the journalism we do here at Slate. We know you value our work and you know how urgent it is right now. We do need your help to do it. Sign up for Slate Plus and help secure Slate's future. To learn more and to begin your two-week free trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. And now back to our conversation with Jed Sugarman and Andrew Kent of Fordham Law School. And we're going to get to their paper on the Take Care Clause in Article 2. It's got everybody talking, well, everybody who counts in constitutional wonk world. Let's turn, uh, given that we're talking about the role of history, uh, to faithful execution in Article 2, um, because uh, we don't do that many shows about a law review article, but um, this one warrants a show. And it warrants a show because I think the three of you tried to do a really, really deep dive. I was telling Andrew before the show, I learned a lot about Tudors and Stuarts and the Magna Carta uh, reading this. Um, it's not something we always talk about and probably on the left talk about even less. Uh, but I, I want to start from the proposition that oath-taking is kind of weird, um, that uh, <laughs> your, your whole paper is about uh, the oath clauses in Article 2, and we'll get there. But uh, we don't think super hard as a constitutional matter about the swearing of oaths and the force that that has. So I wonder if we can just start almost from this quasi-theological or religious question that I had uh, reading the paper, which is, wh- what? Oaths? What? What's up with that? Can you, can you just answer <laughs> that part of it before we dig in on the, on the language, Andrew? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. And I, I think probably the uh, one way to get our heads around it is to kind of go out to the proverbial 30,000 feet uh, view here and, and think about um, sort of how government would work in uh, an era much earlier than ours, you know, going back hundreds of years when, um, you know, government has very few resources, government is very small, uh, travel and communications are extremely difficult. 
Um, you do not have anything resembling, uh, you know, modern bureaucracies. And so kind of all the uh, strategies uh, that we use today to kind of keep government officials doing their job, um, you know, constant bureaucratic monitoring by superiors, oversight by a free press, um, you know, people being able to check up on what you're doing just with an email, um, you know, frequent access to the courts to test the legality of things. You know, most or all of these structures are either just entirely non-existent or uh, only you know, very thinly available in kind of the pre-modern period. And so there was a real um, uh, question about kind of how are, how are we going to get um, you know, the sheriff who's out there on his own uh, in his jurisdiction and without really anyone uh, effectively able to control him, how are we going to keep that person from abusing his office, from taking unauthorized profits, um, from, you know, just misusing it in some way? And in an era that is much, you know, was much more religious than our own um, and took oaths extremely seriously, um, the, the oath was something that was turned to as uh, as a real uh, powerful bind on a on a on a man's soul. I mean, I, I say man because you know government officials were always uh, male at the time, and um, falsely swearing was something that could send you to hell. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal to in a religious age. It's not to say people didn't violate their oaths. I mean, of course they did, but it did have a, a power that I think is a little hard for us to imagine in a time that's both more secular and also just kind of, it's a little head scratching to think why, why anyone would imagine that that would be an effective method of, of controlling the discretion of government officials. So we, we do have to kind of transport ourselves to a very different world, I think, to understand the centrality of the oath. I, I love that. It's sort of what, what you're saying is that you have to start from the predicate that God's watching, uh, which is really hard for us to, uh, you know, God is a check, but but that is certainly where um, this grows up from. Um, Jed, can you talk a little bit about the language that you all were uh, drilling down on, the, the take care and the faithful execution language in Article 2? Sure. So this is really about two clauses of the Constitution that have often been misunderstood. So the first is uh, is part of Article 2. The take care clause uh, in, in its explicit wording is that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And the oath clause is that the president will take an oath to faithfully execute the office. And what's interesting in studying these two clauses is that they're often used by uh, by scholars and, and by judges um, to expand the power of the president or, or uh, of other officers. That the that to faithfully execute means to go uh, go beyond. Uh, and and uh, this, these clauses have have often been used to uh, to create powers and extend powers. And as we dug into the history, um, it was clear that the use of the phrase faithful execution was meant to limit discretion, right? Limit officers to stick within their statutory assigned responsibilities, to serve the public interest um, and not to serve themselves, um, and to act with loyalty, uh, duty, and care. Um, and so, so that, I think, addresses a whole line of cases um, that I think would, would at least be treated differently um, given this history. And keep in mind that the, uh, the officers of this era all took oaths and understood the meaning of these oaths to limit their discretion as whether revolutionary war officers or as uh, public servants um, in the 18th century. Uh, and and the, the language of faithful execution was in state constitutions before this um, and many statutes. 
that they they were referring to this body of law. It wasn't a uh, just a kind of ecumenical hortatory. Just think about God. Um, it's interesting. We, we with the advice of another scholar, William Nelson at NYU, we dug in. He showed us a case in his book, and we went back and dug into the archives, and we found that there were judges um, in the colonial era who would think about who who. Uh, there's an example in Philadelphia of a recorder of deeds whose mess whose office was was uh, reportedly too messy and everything was chaotic and this was an incredibly important office in the colonies and the judges said well let's go visit the office and they walk in they see a mess they see he's not there but he left someone else in his place and they ask three questions uh, has this person he left in his place the the deputy had he taken an oath um, he had not. Um, had he given a, a security? Um, and had he given a security for his faithful discharge of the office? And he had not. And the judges looked at this and said, uh, this is not acceptable. They removed the recorder of deeds and they named his replacement. So the, these, this language, oaths and the language of faithfulness, um, were something relevant to judges in the, in the 1760s um, as a matter of resolving officers' duties. So, so Andrew, I want to ask this question carefully because I think this is the radical piece of this. There has been a presumption, you say, among scholars to read these faithful execution clauses and these oaths as being useful for bolstering really expansive ideas of uh, presidential power. And I, I, I want to – I'm curious about that, what that symbolizes. But then I, I think you – also make this really important point that Jed just made, that actually these oaths and the framers thought about these oaths as these were middle manager oaths. These were, right, you you quote the town constable, the weigher of bricks, the, the taster of ale, the inspector of flax. That was the oath they were taking. There was a different oath that monarchs would take, and the framers wanted nothing to do with that oath. So I guess I'm curious, who read all this and said huh, this must shore up a really expansive view of executive powers. Presidential powers have sort of grown over time, but I think one of the things that's apparent to scholars who dive into this is they've grown over the time, uh, you know, based on kind of felt necessities and political imperatives and things like the Civil War, but often with um, pretty flimsy intellectual and constitutional Justification and um, you know the the examples that that uh, of the clauses in Article Two that we looked deeply into are are, are classic in that respect. I mean, they are uh, we found quite clearly um, intended to restrain discretion, to impose duties and restraints on office holders, not to enlarge powers. But you go and you look, you know, uh, some great presidents and some not great presidents have have invoked these as as, as power conferring. You know, Abraham Lincoln. Um, uh, you know, Roosevelt, um, you know, Harry Truman, when he famously, you know, seized steel mills and, you know, one of the classic Supreme Court cases about presidential authority to act without statute. Presidents and their legal advisors have quite often kind of made these sort of kitchen sink kind of arguments for trying to do something that it doesn't seem clear that they could because there wasn't any obvious part of the Constitution or any obvious statute that supported it. They would say, well, we're vested with executive power and the president is commander in chief. And the president has the uh, authority to faithfully execute the laws. And lumping that all together somehow gives you this expansive expansive presidential power. Um, The Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice um, 
often does this kind of kitchen sink approach. They have some you know, very aggressive uh, opinions about executive power that just kind of lump all this stuff together and say it must add up to a whole big amount of kind of presidential royalism. Um, and I think when you kind of look individually at, at the building blocks of Article 2 and in the historical context of the time, it just comes clear that that's just wrong. Um, and there, there might be reasons why over time, you know, more presidential power makes sense or something, but that is not the original design uh, of the document. And so, um, you know, I think one of the big challenges of our paper and related work by, uh, you know, for example, somebody uh, named Julian Mortensen, a law professor at the University of Michigan, who has a very uh, terrific work on the executive power clause of the Constitution. I think one of the challenges we're kind of laying down is um, you can either be an originalist or you can be in favor of super expansive presidential power. But um, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, I think, uh, to be both. And Jed, am yeah. I right uh, in characterizing the framers' choice? They could have borrowed from very, very sort of capacious uh, oaths that monarchs would take. They they made a deliberate choice to actually demand something. You talk about it in terms of uh, fiduciary obligations or fidelity, uh, but they made the decision to walk away from a very, very expansive view that we now map back onto the oath. That's right? Well, it looks deliberate. We don't have any, we don't have a smoking gun, but it, it's sure, surely the founders uh, who wrote the Constitution knew of coronation oaths and they knew of the oath that they as middle level officers, as you described it, sort of mid-level bureaucrats or uh, mid-level officers. And, and they, it looks like a deliberate choice not to, ch- not to have the, the, president take a coronation oath or anything that borrowed from it. I mean, that would have been the place to have easily turned if they conceived of the president as a king. And so the choice to use um, upper level or mid-level oaths instead of the coronation oath looks like a conscious decision to reject a kind of royalist uh, trapping or a royalist framing um, of the president. Um, and so that uh, I think that says something important um, about the conception of the presidency as not as non-royalist. And I think it's also important to look at at how this relates to some of the issues that they were grappling with at the time that have come up today. So the question of pardons, the question of removal. So one other example, Andrew gave a lot of great examples of of how um, the take care clause has been used um, too expansively by judges. Well, Madison himself relied on the take care clause that the president faithfully ex- that the that the laws be faithfully executed um as a as a uh uh, a silence filler. Uh, the, the Constitution doesn't say who gets to remove officers, um, and that that's a that was a, probably an oversight. Uh, but Madison in the first Congress says, "Oh, well, wait a second. The Take Care Clause uh, is what gives the president the power to fire officers without the Senate's authority." And that may be right as a basic structural move, but then what what many uh, uh, are now suggesting, and maybe this is something that that Kavanaugh is is going to pursue. Um, um, is that the president has a what's called the unitary executive power to fire anyone in the executive branch he wants, regardless of what Congress has 
whatever protections Congress has created. And, and I think one way to understand the faithfully execute language is that that uh, um, adds a limit to the president's firing power, the removal power, and maybe opens the door for Congress to create some extra protections uh, for the president can't fire, for example, the Fed, the chairman of the Fed or Robert Mueller. <laughs> if if uh, if Congress were to create a uh, an independent uh, prosecutor, a special counsel, um, could Congress create some protections against the faithless removal um, of an officer? So so those are some other ways to think about how this constitutional language uh, affects our current debates. So, so Andrea, I want to be super precise. You're not just claiming that the oaths and the, the responsibilities baked into the oaths in the faithful execution clauses cabin presidential power. You're also saying there's an affirmative duty of something that looks like, well, fidelity or some kind of fiduciary obligation, that it's not a, a nothing, that there is an affirmative d- duty to do something that looks like fidelity, whatever that means you're going to tell me. That also is kind of radical, right? Because we're now talking about the president in terms of obligations that he owes to us as opposed to constraints on his power. Can you explain? I know you have three different components of fidelity, but this is also, I think, worth unpacking. We do have, uh, based on the history that we found, think that there are sort of three elements, and they overlap somewhat. I don't want to act like these are entirely distinct concepts. But, you know, one is uh, a duty not to act beyond the authority of one's office, not to exceed, um, you know, statutory bounds would be, you know, sort of the primary way that that would apply to the president. A second is um, to act um, in sort of a good faith, impartial, honest, even-handed, and diligent way uh, when executing the laws that Congress passes and and executing the constitutional responsibilities of the office. So that does contain both some uh, discretion limiting and some affirmative duties there. And then the third piece uh, is a a restraint on taking uh, unauthorized profits or engaging in financial self-dealing with the office. And, um, you know, so I think the picture is, is what you say, Dahlia. It's, it's both um, a, a presidency that's limited by important duties owed to, uh, to the Constitution, owed to, you know, to Congress's duly passed statutes, and also, I think, duties owed to uh, the public. And, you know, I think the you know, a sort of shorthand way that, that we talk about this is to say that the president is almost like what today we would call a fiduciary, somebody like a trustee who has a duty to act solely for their beneficiary, not to uh, engage in self-dealing to enrich themselves, not to decide, um, uh, you know, to exceed the, the terms of the trust, but, you know, they're supposed to faithfully follow it. And when you think about the presidency that way, it is interesting because it suggests, you know, who is this this beneficiary or who is the the entity or the person to whom uh, this fidelity is owed? And I think it's inescapable that it's kind of our constitutional system, but it's also the the American public and the public good. And so, you know, in the paper, we resist kind of drawing too many contemporary conclusions. We kind of leave that to, to future work. Um, or to uh, other commentators, but, um, you know, quite obviously and kind of self-evidently, you know, is called to mind by our, our current president, who so often seems to um, to act uh, for private or selfish reasons. Sometimes that's financial self-dealing. Sometimes that's, uh, you know, things like being uh, apparently unwilling to try to protect our electoral machinery because that would in some way limit Russia's ability to help him again or stir up the pot with the 2016 election interference or whatever it is. But I think the reason that our, our work now, this historical work is sort of catching 
some people's attention is that we're presented maybe really for the first time in American history with a president who so often seems to act in a selfish or private interest rather than um, being kind of true to the oath to act for the benefit of the public and the, and the public good. Uh, and it's it's not a great place to be as a country. I mean, even past presidents that I've disagreed with uh, politically very much, I, I never questioned that uh, their actions were motivated by what they thought was for the good of the country and for the good of the public. And But I think it's uh, it sometimes feels kind of inescapable that those questions come up now. So, I, you know, I do think even though, you know, we're going back to Magna Carta and stuff that, the, you know, the paper does speak to the present also. Uh, Jed, I, I want to be really clear that the paper, as Andrew just said, is not a polemic about the, the current moment, that it is an incredibly fact-bound historical uh, dive into the meaning of language principally. And I know you guys used dictionaries and, you know, uh, contemporaneous writing, and I know there's a tremendous amount of just scholarly work here, but it is inevitable that people are going to read it to say we have a president who is not acting as a fiduciary and there seems to be all three of your components of fidelity, uh, Andrew, are in play. And, and Jed, I wonder how one puts meat on the bones in a moment when we really are saying as long as the president doesn't commit crimes, he's fit uh, when each of these each of these duties that Andrew has just uh, laid out seems to be, you know, self enrichment and and acting in his own best interest, none of these duties are are are. I think uh, uh, you can't look at him and not see failures. How, how do we make salient something that has just all but disappeared from the discourse? Right. Well, yeah, let me just echo that first observation, which is that this article is a historical piece and it is written in a way that I think for anyone who's interpreting the Constitution, originalist or not an originalist, the, the, the text and context matter and getting the text and context right as a historical matter should should be something significant to everybody. And, and let me also add um, that even though I think this project uh, was part of, a, comes out of this era of a particular president, what we find really cuts in in both directions, uh, politically, or in terms of you know, looking around at, at presidents over the last decades, even if I think Andrew's right, that we wouldn't question whether presidents had um, in the past the public's interest in mind, I do think that there are ways that we can look back historically and say, for example, you know, someone looking at this history might raise some questions about um, DACA, the policy of uh, of, of non-prosecution. I, I don't think that this history cuts clearly. I think there's some complications about prosecutorial discretion um, with uh, with immigrants who were brought and were born elsewhere, but then grew up here and, and prosecutorial authority. But but when Obama makes a, a decision categorically about how to handle a certain class of citizens um, that is inconsistent with existing uh, congressional statutes, um, one has to raise the question about whether that's faithful execution of the law. Um, when, uh, when the ACA was implemented um, and Congress set certain deadlines and guidelines um, and then um, the, President Obama interpreted them differently uh, out of step. You know, the, those were some questions about the use of executive power that were not consistent with statutes. And then I think today, um, I think this is about not just about Trump, but I think this is actually a larger story about the growth of the executive 
executive branch and the growth of the power of a president um, with, with, with courts not giving sufficient oversight. I mean, this also ties back into Gundy. It's a different issue, but um, it's a di or different text. But I think that there are lots of historical lessons here about uh, how the founders had a certain wisdom about limiting the discretion of a president uh, because the presidency was a dangerous branch with the power of the sword um, to expand its power. And they made some choices in the constitutional language to limit that discretion, limit that power. Um, and, uh, and I think that we should see that as something that applies to this particular president, um, but something that should be taken to heart across the political spectrum. So I, I can't let either of you walk away without asking you what's going to sound like a fatuous question, but this is a really deep dive into originalism, original public meaning, text and language. Are, are we all originalists now, Andrew? <laughs> Um, I, I, I think Jed's going to tell you that he is, and, and we all should be. <laughs> I'm not. I, you know, I look at our legal and constitutional landscape, and I see, you know, if you pardon the analogy, you know, people speaking a lot of very different languages. You know, some people are very, um, you know, based on, on text and history and originalism. Some people, you know, care very much about precedent. Some care very much about policy values and consequences. And, uh, you know, I think our sort of constitutional conversation is one w where lots of people are speaking different languages, as I said. And so I think uh, certainly lawyers and politicians and to some extent legal academics need to be comfortable speaking these different languages as well. I mean, there is absolutely no agreement and I don't see a prospect of agreement anytime soon that, you know, one method of reading the Constitution is absolutely and in all cases superior to another. Even self-proclaimed originalists like Scalia, for example, defer to precedent that's clearly non-originalist at times for fear of unsettling, um, you know, longstanding institutional arrangements and things like that. So I, I see myself as kind of a ecumenical or you know or whatever. Now I'm mixing metaphors. I apologize, but <laughs> but someone who thinks it's, it's someone who thinks it's important to address the reality of a multiplicity of constitutional languages and not not say that we can just choose one. Forceful rebuttal, Jed Sugarman. Oh, not no rebuttal. Um, I, I think that I, I want to just uh, second the idea that, well, you know, if, if Justice Scalia could have called himself an originalist, he also called himself a faint-hearted originalist. And, and, and Andrew mentioned one way that originalism isn't, uh, even in its most famous practitioners, sort of originalism against everything else. I mean, Thomas disagreed with Scalia um, on precedent. I, I'd say that one can be an originalist while balancing that uh, emphasis on the text and context with other values, especially if, you know, and, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation about double jeopardy um, and also the case about the cross uh, and, uh, and Gandhi, you know, precedent can still matter. So here, the big picture on originalism, just in a, in a couple sentences is, look, you know, everyone, when we interpret the constitution, everyone should value text and context. Um, originalists believe that the text and context should have much more value than um, than other uh, interpretive methods. Um, I you know I, th I think that's important, um, but it's not a unitary kind of uh, monopoly um, on interpretation. And I think also one should be a modest originalist in the way that I think Alito was um, to to recognize that unless the evidence is clear. Um, to be modest about the claims of originalism. That's one point. Um, a second point is that uh, there is a lot of space under originalism to see the invitation with, uh, with vague texts as purposely delegating. This is a different kind of delegation idea, but when the framers used 
broad language like privileges or immunities and equal protection, uh, faithful execution, uh, they were inviting future generations to take those values. Um, and they knew that, as Justice uh, John Marshall said, it's a constitution we're expounding and it shouldn't, quote, have the prolixity of a legal code, unquote. So, so it's the, the, when, the, when the framers used vague language, they understood what they were doing in the 1780s and in the 1860s um, to allow for the principles to be a legacy handed on to others. Um, and so I think that in this, I think that relates, I think, to a, a, a point that the founders understood, um, but that we should understand today. Um, the text and context are important for judges to enforce, but it's also a limitation on judicial discretion. And I think that this is my uh, plea to progressives out there. Recognize that originalism became a movement in the 1980s as a reaction to liberal justices on the court. Um, it is, if it was true then that originalists embraced this doctrine to limit the discretion of liberal justices, I think there's some historical wisdom in, for today's progressives to see how a sincere commitment to originalism is something that would limit the discretion of a new conservative majority. Um, and it's not just about the politics here. I think originalism is an important concept to, for judges to do their jobs, but to do their jobs carefully with a certain degree of restraint and to limit their discretion rather than just sort of implementing whatever their policy preferences are. The paper is Faithful Execution in Article 2, uh, written by Andrew Kent, Ethan Lieb, and Jed Sugarman. It's worth a read, and I thank both of you so very, very much uh, for taking time to help us understand it. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Thank you very much, Dahlia. And thanks, Jed. Thanks, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is, as ever, amicus at plate.com. We love your letters. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. And the next show will be the biggie, end of term, blockbusters, other blockbusters. Stay tuned. Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus soon. Amicus.